The Waterline Live. If we use the COVID-19 pandemic as a wake-up call that we need to have more sustainable, environmentally friendly development, then the trajectory of carbon dioxide emissions in the coming years could look very different indeed. And I think that is the main message that we at the World Meteorological Organization and the United Nations have as a whole is that we need to show unity in tackling both the coronavirus pandemic plus the longer term problem of climate change. We have the solutions and we need this to be based on science, but we really do need unity and um, climate change is potentially with us, you know, with us for centuries and, you know, we now have the opportunity to, to take action on, the, on, on this. I think it was your Secretary General said in the same way as we're trying to flatten the curve of the pandemic, we should be uh, aiming to do the same for climate change. Yes, we need to flatten both curves. Um, the COVID pandemic has obviously had a very steep curve in a number of uh, a number of countries, and climate change we've seen similarly steep curves in a number of climate indicators such as temperatures, such as sea level rise, such as glacier retreat. It's going to take more time to flatten that those curves, but we can do it, and we certainly need to do it. And so there are a lot of lessons that we can learn from the COVID pandemic based on science, you know, we can indeed flatten the, the long-term climate change curve. Join the Climate Conversation with Jonathan Levy. Good afternoon and welcome to the Waterline Live International Webinar. Uh, I'm Jonathan Levy and I'll be your host for the next 90 minutes. Um, this will be a, a little bit different technically. Uh, we're using the uh, studio feed here at Blue Aurora Media. So that's going to be coming to you via the screen share facility. Uh, but the Q&A function is still working. So send us any questions. And we'll do our best to weave them in. Uh, if not, we'll try and get back to you offline. So here we are. It's uh, Day four, International Business Day, brought to you by Marketing Humber, alongside event partners, the University of Hull and Yorkshire Water. Uh, and thank you to the day sponsors, SSE Thermal. Um, well, uh, the webinar session that we're about to have is split into three. Um, first of all, we're going to look at the uh, global climate change challenge. So that's a sort of a situation report, headlines really, about what's happening uh, around the world. And we'll be hearing from some eminent scientists on that. We'll then be taking a brief pause to have a look at the view from the waterline. What that is, talking to a few of the organisations locally in terms of what they're doing uh, to potentially take to a global marketplace, which then leads on, of course, to talking about the international trade opportunity uh, when we have guests from the UK government uh, looking for trade opportunities around the world together with some additional uh, guests. So that's the, the lineup uh, for today. And as the title suggests, it's an international session. Uh, many of our guests are joining us from around the world. Uh, and I'm also mindful that we have a lot of uh, uh, international delegates as well uh, in our sort of global audience. So we're also aware that we're showcasing the region. Um, 
We've got a lot of guests to get through, so uh, this will be a very concise session. Uh, some of the contributions we're going to keep quite short, but we want you to get the maximum uh, out of this. Um, so, so there we are. Um, over the next few days, uh, there'll also be a lot of podcasts. So in preparation for this, uh, I've been talking to all our guests, uh, recording preparatory interviews, um, which will go out in our audio podcasts over the next week or so. Uh, and they'll be available on the normal uh, podcast channels, podcast platforms, and also on the Waterline website at uh, thewaterline.global forward slash podcasts. So let's get into part one and a situation report from leading scientists on the latest data and observations from around the planet. So, as you may have seen on the agenda, we've got something of a roll call of eminent scientists. Uh, I'm not going to ask everyone to introduce themselves now. Uh, we'll do that as we go. So, uh, what's making the climate change headlines? Uh, let's cross to Geneva in Switzerland and the headquarters of the World Meteorological Organization. Good afternoon. Hello, everybody. My name is Johannes Kuhlmann. I work in the World Meteorological Organization as the director responsible for water and cryosphere. And as you can see from these two topics, the work that I do is very much also relevant and focused on anything that has to do with climate change adaptation and also touches a little bit on mitigation, but water and especially all the cryosphere-related processes are very important as a link between the global development agenda and, say, the Paris Agreement climate change debate. I see that September was recently declared the hottest on record, and this year to date, the second hottest. Um, so what's the overall trend with uh, calm dioxide levels? Is there any sign of that slowing down? We have just issued... As we do every year, the state of the climate report this year about 2019, and we know that 2019 has been the second warmest year on our records. We also publish in that report information on the atmospheric um, composition and on greenhouse gases and what we can measure in terms of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. We cannot measure the emissions, but we can measure the greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere and we unfortunately cannot see any um, slowing down of the increase of um, the concentrations we see. So at the moment we are still on an ever accelerating yeah, um, concentration and ever rising and faster rising concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And what impacts is that having uh, on the polar regions uh, and ice melts and, and, and water level? What, what have you been seeing this year? Um, we have in the past five and really also in the past 10 years, because we don't have two or three exceptional years here, but we, if we look into the past five or 10 years, we know this is the warmest period we've ever dealt with. And as you have said, the warmest period means in terms of the linkages with water and cryosphere, 
that more and more ice is melting faster. And we have seen studies and ice melt acceleration rates, especially in Greenland, that have been um, higher and faster than we had expected and predicted. So at the moment, um, the sea level rise, which was around one to two millimeters in the past, has accelerated to three to four millimeters a year. And um, we have seen more uh, unstable ice movements, both in Greenland, in the Antarctic, and the Arctic sea level extent, which is not so relevant for the sea level rise because the waters, the ice is floating on water. Um, uh, has has increased, so we can see that consistently over the past years that this process is accelerating. So, what would your message be to the delegates at the Waterline Summit regarding the importance of decarbonisation uh, and and reducing CO two and even taking CO two out of the atmosphere? I think decarbonization is a, a no alternative imperative that we have to follow. I have read your pledge and I would totally sign up to almost every box you can tick there from food waste to whatever. Do I have to take the car and do I need to heat a house if it's inhabited or not? So I think all of these parts are important. And I think we need to do two things. We need to be climate intelligent. And that has to do with many aspects, transport, agriculture. It's about what we eat and how it produces. It's industry. It's the energy we consume, of course. And we also need to look at how we can create yeah, resilient regions like your, the one you work in and you live in. Because with a positive scenario of, of one meter sea level rise, you will have immense cost to get the water away from the places that will then be much more below sea level so you need pumps to keep that stuff dry and if the if the worst scenario happens then i don't know parts of great britain but also germany from where i come from or the netherlands will be flooded i mean this we we have to talk about this it is a bit of taboo topic but if we will have 10 meter sea level rise i don't see how we will be technically able to fence off the water from some of the areas that are now yeah in that range of where the sea level is at the moment so but i think that we can avoid this if we work together now and this is really bringing civil society businesses economic people together and just uh, giving ex examples for how we can do differently. And so I think the, the Waterline Initiative is a really good one in that regard. So compliments. Thanks very much, Johannes. Uh, so let's have a look at what's happening in the Antarctic down at the South Pole. And we're joined now by Bob Larter from the British Antarctic Survey. Okay, I'm a, a marine geophysicist and I'm the UK principal investigator of what's called the Thwaites Offshore Research Project. So what we're doing there is we're, the, it's part of a bigger enterprise that is looking at Thwaites Glacier, the most rapidly changing and most vulnerable large glacier in West Antarctica, which is 
is what's making a big part of the Antarctic contribution to sea level rise at the moment. We have collected very detailed bathymetry data in front of the glacier. So all our project is, is working offshore in front of the glacier uh, from the marine side. And we know from previous work that the, the main driver of change in these West Antarctic glaciers is warm water coming from the deep ocean. And uh, perhaps counterintuitively, the warm water is, is, is the densest water mass. So it, it travels along the seafloor. It looks for the deep passages in the seafloor. Um, what we found when we, we uh, mapped the seafloor in great detail in front of Thwaites is that the, the deep passages are deeper and wider than, than had previously been suspected. So they have the capacity to, to convey even more warm water under the floating ice shelf and to the grounding zone of the glacier. So you can, you can see as you get closer the, the ridges and the troughs in the seafloor and the, the, camera, the fly path tends, is, is, is guided through one of these troughs, which is, is one of the troughs that's full of this relatively warm water traveling from the deep ocean to the glacier. So we're following the path of, of the warm water uh, approaching the glacier. But they show where the deep pathways continue under the ice shelf and up to the grounding zone, the point where the ice is starting to float. So we, we can see that the, the ice in, in Thwaites Glacier in particular is sat on a, a bed that's a long way below sea level and actually getting further below sea level as you go back upstream. So can you give some idea of the scale of Antarctica in terms of the amount of ice and what would happen to uh, sea levels as it melts? Okay, well, th these numbers come with a, a big warning that nobody expects this amount of ice to, to go into the, the ocean on any kind of uh, time frame that, that humans are interested in at the moment. But the total amount of ice in Antarctica, if you, if you took it all instantaneously and put, melted it and put it in the ocean, that would give a, a mean sea level rise of 58 metres. So that, that's a whole lot of ocean. Uh, a lot of that is thought in, in East Antarctica, which is sitting on continents that's above sea level, it is thought to be quite robust. The biggest uncertainty we have in projecting sea level uh, for the rest of the century is, is what happens to the Antarctic ice sheet. Because the problem in Antarctica, there are these quite large areas of the ice sheet that are grounded below sea level. If, if the big glaciers in Antarctica from these submerged areas start flowing at two, three times the rate they're flowing at the moment. That, that is a, a very large contribution uh, uh, to, to future sea level. So this is a big thing that we can only, we can only pin down these, these global mean sea level rise estimates by solving this problem of what's going on in Antarctica and what's going to go on there in, in the next decades. Thanks, Bob. Um, before we go to Greenland, I'm going to stay in the Southern Hemisphere uh, and talk briefly about the oceans. Uh, our next guest currently resides in New Zealand, where it's the early hours of the morning. So this next piece was recorded a little earlier. James Nicotine is not only a marine scientist, but also a filmmaker and produced this video narrated by Sting. And yet nine tenths of the space for life lies in the ocean. This great expanse provides half the oxygen we breathe, it regulates the planet's climate, and feeds billions of people. Without a healthy ocean, 
there would be no life as we know it. Yeah, we got Sting to narrate the film, and it was a, yeah, it was a beautiful, beautiful piece with some stunning shots of our previous expeditions around the world, and and yeah, Sting did a great job at understanding the pacing and the and the intensity and the emotion in the in the film, and so we we're very pleased with the result, which was then showed at the at the climate conference in Madrid, and subsequently in different meetings, uh, high-level meetings, to basically advocate for other countries to join this this global ocean alliance and it's so far i think uh probably up to 15 or 20 countries have signed up including belgium sweden uh the seychelles and uh, yeah countries like that yeah what are your concerns for what could happen to the oceans if if this and other aligned initiatives are not followed through I mean, look, you know, some advocates out there think that we should protect half the ocean. I'm probably among them. Uh, people like Enric Sala from National Geographic. Um, you know, we, we've only got one planet. At the end of the day, you know, 60% of the ocean is the high seas, which is ungoverned, unregulated, uh, un, you, know, you know, unenforced. So, so, so it's very difficult to enforce. And so we're trying to get a, a treaty for the high seas over the next few years. And it's been a big big process at the UN, getting stakeholders, countries together, over 190 parties to take a look at this, to add on to the 1982 convention on, on the, the law of the sea. And so, you know, if, if we have any hope of, of securing a healthy ocean for future generations, we should really start uh, putting in place measures to, you know, regenerate some of those areas, those those worrying, growing, you know, dead zones and those empty spaces. And I think we really need to, to understand that the, our fundamental survival is, is linked to our, yeah, to the survival of the natural world. Well, our next two guests uh, are advisors to a new motorsport that gets underway next year. Extreme E uses electric SUVs in an off-road challenge in extreme environments to draw attention to locations challenged by climate change uh, to not only showcase the issues but also to deliver legacy projects. Professor Peter Wadhams of Cambridge University chairs the Extreme E Scientific Committee and is one of the world's leading experts on polar oceans. He's currently in Turin in Italy uh, where he's a visiting professor. So Greenland uh, is one of the locations for Extreme E. What's happening there professor? There's, there's very special climate problems for Greenland, of course, are the fact that the Greenland ice sheet is melting, and it's melting at a really accelerating rate. It's melting about six times as fast as it was only a decade ago. And um, I was up on, on Greenland ice sheet on the first, it was the 1st of August last year. I remember we were actually checking out the site we wanted to do the race, and it turned out to be the day on which there was more melt from the Greenland ice sheet than any other recorded day in history. And it was 12 and a half billion tonnes of water melted off the ice sheet in one day. Uh, that's, that all goes into the ocean and raises sea level. So the, the rise in global sea level now, which might be uh, several metres by the end of the century, is, is being driven by Greenland melt. And we've had reports recently about permafrost um, reducing in Siberia, for example. Uh, so there are all sorts of these knock-on impacts. 
Yes, there's the, well, that's one of the things I've been working on, and and I'm, one of the things I'm really worried about, um, which is that um, if you look offshore along the Siberian coast, um, there's the Arctic Ocean is very shallow uh, around a lot of the a lot of the the, co the the coastal regions of the Arctic Ocean, maybe only fifty to hundred meters deep, and the sea ice is melting back. This is why I was interested in it. Uh, so instead of um, sea ice filling the Arctic Ocean winter and summer, you now have it filling the Arctic Ocean for the, in the winter, but it retreats in the summer to just a little bit in the middle, which will soon go itself. So all this open water um, absorbs heat from the sun in, in the summer. Uh, and because it's shallow, the water warms up and that warms up the seabed, and the seabed is, has got several hundred meters of methane in the form of sediments, so solids in the sediment, and it's protected from coming out by the fact that there's a layer of permafrost. And so what we're seeing now are huge plumes of methane coming out of the seabed and coming up and release, being released into the atmosphere. That's, that's, again, warming the climate faster, but it could turn into an actual catastrophic burst where all the methane that's in the sediments, which is a huge amount, uh, several hundred gigatons, billion tons of it, will all come out in one go. And that will give us a sudden burst of heating, which may be as much as one degree. So instead of getting us a, a slow but steady heating of the climate, which is not that slow, but it's, 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 it's heating. Uh, suddenly there'll be a big step change. We'll get, the whole world will suddenly get warmer by a degree in, in a few months. So is this release of methane fairly imminent? What is the timescale when this might happen, do you think? This um, disintegration of the permafrost layer and therefore release of the methane could happen any time uh, but certainly it's likely to happen within five years because there's been this acceleration of, of methane emissions going on. Each year there's more plumes of methane coming out of the seabed. Um, also you're getting on the side, you're getting these methane explosions as well, where there's a build-up of methane underground causes these, these great big explosions generating huge pits of, uh, of where a bit like a kind of gigantic shell hole. The, these things are, are developing fast and it could turn into a sort of methane catastrophe. Wow. Well, thanks for that uh, insight. Uh, and now we go over to one of your colleagues on the Extreme Scientific Committee, Francisco Oliveira in Brazil. Uh, an Amazon scientist and former director of policies to combat deforestation at the Brazilian Ministry in the Environment. Uh, now, the Amazon's often depicted as a huge uh, lung for the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, we continue to hear about deforestation. What's happening there and what's the impact? Uh, let's, let's start with some numbers. And just to give you an idea, just imagine the Amazon region. You can put within the Amazon region, you can put all the Western uh, Europe, Europe and uh, the, within 
the Amazon region. So it's a huge area, over 6 million square kilometers. And uh, as I said, uh, the Amazon rainforest plays an important role in cooling the planet uh, and, and is the largest uh, continuous forest, uh, tropical forest that we have. Uh, just to give you an idea, uh, the Amazon rainforest stores over 100 gigatons of carbon. That's the equivalent of 10 years of fossil fuels emissions. It's a huge amount of carbon that is stored there. But when uh, they are logged and the forest is burned, all this dioxide carbon is carbon dioxide is uh, is released to the atmosphere in alarming rates, and that's that could cause problems. That will change the Amazon uh, in some situations, changing things in a permanent way. Uh, but uh, let's continue with the the amount of carbon that we have. Uh, the and the the, the, the forests absorb per year 600 million metric tons of CO2 every year. It's a huge amount. And also it's a huge amount of water that uh, through this process of photosynthesis in which carbon dioxide, uh, dioxide is going into the, 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 the trees. At the same time, you have water going out. And the water that's going out from the forest it's, it goes uh, in, in as moisture to the atmosphere. And the, the amount of this, this water, per, uh, it's about 20 trillion liters of water per day. It's a huge amount of water. That, that's what we call the flying rivers of the Amazon, which is the same amount that uh, uh, the Amazon River discharge in the Atlantic Ocean is almost the same amount of, of this flying river. And so if we cut down the Amazon forest, if we let it burn, we are going to be losing all of this, uh, let's say, uh, this amount of water that is going for the agricultural land. And with that, we are going to lose uh, crop yields we are going to lose lots of things in the agricultural sector also, not just for conservation, for biodiversity, etc. Thanks, Francisco. Sorry to have to move on. Uh, but our next guest is in North America, in California. It's Professor Ralph Keeling at the Scripps Institute of Oceanography. Uh, but you're probably best known for continuing the work of your father, Charles, who started uh, to measure CO2 in the atmosphere in the late 50s. Um, and today, the Keeling Curve, as it's known, is a definitive reference. Uh, I know you're also involved in other studies, but tell me what you're seeing. Um, in the carbon dioxide work, I've continued in my father's footsteps. He started this uh, record really several records, but the most famous of which is the, the Mauna Loa CO2 record, uh, which started in 1958. It, you, you first notice it uh, moving above what was a probably a natural baseline some point in the late 19th century. The explosion of the use of fossil fuels after World War II has just gone up and up and up and up, and it, it, it continues to accelerate. The current rates are around two and, two and a half parts per million per year. Not only are we at the highest level we've ever been, we're going up faster than we ever have. And that's because mainly because we're just using more fossil fuels. 
It's not like fossil fuel usage has peaked yet. I mean, it's maybe peaking, you can, you can wonder, but it hasn't really started down, that's for sure. So as far as I can see, uh, and no doubt you can confirm this, that there seems to be no reflection at the moment of any sort of abatement in those levels. So all the pressure is on from here onwards, really, in, in trying to reduce our, our, our CO2 emissions. That's right. I mean, what we, what we hear about is ambition to move this curve, and that's good, but we haven't moved it yet. We haven't moved it yet from the standpoint of what you see at the background global stations. I'm sure that you can find townships and cities that have actually started to reduce their emissions, but it doesn't add up to changing the curve globally. Um, there are enough other, other countries and other parties that are still emitting at high rates that it's, it's, it's still going up as fast as ever. We've got the fifth anniversary of the Paris Agreement coming up at the end of the year, uh, and it will now be another year before COP26. What would your message be to the, to the policymakers at those events over the coming months? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would endorse the idea of getting to net zero. I mean, I think this concept of really going completely to zero on CO2 emissions has to be the vision. To, to keep the planet in check. And uh, so a, a clear articulation of those goals and an adherence to uh, an idea of getting really to zero emissions in a matter of decades, not a hundred years. So it's not, it's not so far off. We have to get going on it. I mean, from my understanding, we, uh, the, 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 the threshold that was set of two degrees C warming as some dangerous threshold is as much a political as a scientific uh, threshold. It's, it's political in the sense that it was, it's about what one might achieve if one worked hard enough at, at reducing emissions. But I, my, my gut feeling is that it's beyond dangerous. We're, we're already, it feels already like we're moving into dangerous territory to me with the wildfires and, 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 and storms and, and droughts. Uh, I, can't, I can't feel like what's happening in California recently wasn't dangerous, right? And, I, and you know it's connected to climate. Thanks, Ralph. Uh, and picking up on those uh, extreme temperatures and wildfires uh, you just mentioned, we're now going along the coast to the University of California, San Diego, and atmospheric chemist Rabina Shaheen uh, now, I know you've had a problem uh, getting rid of your virtual uh, background there, uh, but it must be uh, quite a contrast to what you've been experiencing. And I, I know you've been looking at the resulting air quality and potential impact on health. Tell me a little bit more about that. Okay, that's um, a really horrifying uh, condition, especially for Northern California. It's just like on 14th and 15th August, they have like a 450 lightning. And can you imagine the amount of fires everywhere? And the worst thing is because of this storm, uh, it started uh, fanning the other places because we have most of the time during this time of the year, quite a dry weather. And although in California, the rains are rare, and uh, having a dry fuel piled up over the last two, three years, it, be it became a catastrophic uh, fires. And in terms of uh, air quality, the particulate matter is around 400 micrograms per cubic meter. And the normal background that should be good, according to the EPA and uh, 
other health organization is 10 micrograms per cubic meter. And now we have 500, 400. And you can think of this like uh, in, in a desert when you have a windstorm and you can see all the particles and the visibility is so reduced. But that's only the particle. This is just one part. The worst thing is about the ozone because when there are wildfires, there is a lot of um, NOx and SOx and all these VOCs in the air. The ozone level shoots up. Normally, the ozone that's uh, permissible is around 20, 30, 40, up till that range. But we have 170 ppb. And this is the worst uh, time of the year because you already have heat, you have particulate matter and the ozone and other gases. So you can imagine, it's like living in a hell for those days. And what have you been doing to monitor the impacts of the fires? Uh, did you collect samples? Yes, uh, we collect aerosols and uh, because these aerosols, as they move along uh, from the areas that are burning towards the coastal area, their composition change. So the particles, because initially, once they are burning, they have low uh, ox oxidative capacity as uh, the air masses move. Uh, they become oxidized, the particles become oxidized. And the higher the oxidation potential of the particles, there is a high probability when they go into the body, your body, they interact with all the lipids, proteins, as well as uh, some other um, part of the DNA. And they can actually hit those free radicals uh, to those uh, DNA molecules, proteins, and then they can oxidative damage. And that's really bad because that's what happened in some cardiovascular diseases. That's happened also in Alzheimer, diabetic uh, people, they also experience oxidative stress. So then you have a plethora of disease, uh, and especially people who are already sensitive, for them, this is like uh, the worst scenario. Mm, very concerning. And uh, I, I guess another example of how climate change is impacting health. Uh, well, thanks, Rabina. Uh, and somewhere else with air quality issues is India, as I heard from Professor Ratnesh Dwivedi when I spoke to him a little earlier. Now, when we come to India, this is true that the 70% power consumption or energy consumption is done through traditional sources, which, which actually create a lot of problem in environment, whether they are small. If you have ever been in Delhi in the winters, you wouldn't be able to breathe properly. And the reason for this is this environmental pollution, air pollution, Similarly, in, in cities like Delhi, we have to cover our faces. Government of India, this is just an uh, example to set the tone right. Government of India is very aware about this. Current government, which is led by Prime Minister Sri Narendra Modi, is, has educated since they came in power in 2014, they have advocated to use green energy. This is clearly a, a long-term challenge for the world. How serious is the threat for your region? 
let me be honest there are a lot of challenges and not, it as you said i i completely agree that climate change is, uh, is something which cannot be given a solution in one one month two month one year or two year it takes a lot of time and you need to reduce and you need to uh, you need to act fast and you need to act in a right direction we are sitting on a threshold of extinction and i will say stephen hawking was right when he had, he wrote in his uh, not wrote but he expressed the idea that very soon humankind might look for another planet for his survival i fear for our future our planet earth is threatened with an ever expanding population and only finite resources we need to anticipate these disasters and have a plan b if our species is to survive it is imperative we voyage out into the blackness of space with a determination to colonize new worlds across the cosmos well i go on the basis that there's no planet b uh, no matter how attractive that might sound. Well, thanks to everyone for contributing to our climate change headlines. And a reminder that uh, I've recorded audio conversations with all our guests for the Waterline Live podcasts, which will be released uh, over the next uh, few days, next week or so. To make way for our international uh, business and trade panel, uh, we're going to spend a few minutes uh, getting a view from the waterline here in the Humber. highly vulnerable to rising sea levels with so much low-lying land and work is taking place to make the region more resilient from defences to floodwater management. Europe's fastest eroding coastline overlooks the world's largest offshore wind farms and we've seen massive growth in this sector around the Humber Estuary. So let's start at the University of Hull and its Energy and Environment Institute. If we think about many of the global challenges we're facing as, as a broad global society, um, uh, aspects of, of, of climate change, sea level rise, increasing magnitude and frequency of flood events, um, issues to do with pollution such as plastics in our environment, um, right the way through to how we heat and how we power our homes, they're all intricately linked together. Um, and in order to address these big global challenges, we need solutions from all of the disciplines coming together to focus on tackling those those challenges. And as I've been here from some from some of our other guests, um, we've been looking at um, what's happening at the poles, the North and the Antarctic, um, ice melts, impacts on climate, what's happening in the Amazon, um, you know, and and the picture building is that there are lots of accelerators out there that that, that are, I guess creating additional impacts to those originally envisaged. What, what, what's your seeing? What are you seeing? What's the headlines that concern you? Well, of, of course, um, many of the people in, in the Institute, including myself, work globally too. And I've, I've seen um, similar issues in, in, a, in a range of places. So lots of the work we're doing in Southeast Asia, the Mekong Delta, 
massive problems with, with uh, sea level rise, um, uh, sand mining, um, causing really big impacts there. But, but similar, similar things are happening here in, in the Humber. Um, the, the Humber's one of the most flood-prone regions in Europe um, and is facing similar challenges that other parts of the globe do in terms of sea level rise. So, so we, we see them at home, but we, we research them abroad and it's about taking collective learning from, from, from the global community on how we, how we address this. Well, so looking maybe at um, some of the resilience that's needed here in the Humber to climate change, and a lot of that, as you indicated, around water, we've seen flooding, um, we've seen work going into managing flood water, work having to take place on increasing defences along the Humber. We've got, I think, the, the, the most rapidly eroding coastline in Europe, uh, uh, you know, there. So, so, so what are you looking at about and how are you helping in our resilience in these areas? The Humber faces um, significant challenges in the future in, in addressing sea level rise. And as you say, the um, East Coast margin is one of the most rapidly um, eroding um, in, in the world, really, um, certainly within, within, uh, within Europe. So, um, in terms of addressing these things, it's, it's multi-layered. It, it, needs, it needs an understanding of how flood hazard and risk will evolve into the future. Um, so so how, will, how will we flood and, and in what ways and how likely will that be? What's the risk and how is that changing? Um, but also thinking about the, the responses to that. Some of those are engineering responses, but some of them are also societal responses to maybe changing the way in which we think about living with water as well as a society. We've had an awful lot of extreme weather events in Yorkshire and, and everywhere else over the last uh, few years and uh, climate change certainly seems to be here and now and growing, no longer a future issue, uh, and particularly in Hull with the Living With Water Partnership, um, that's in direct response to the flooding events that this part of the world has experienced and some specific geographical challenges with a lot of the area being under sea level. Uh, Yorkshire Water's duty is to ensure that there is uh, no or less and less and ideally none ultimately uh, flooding from the sewer network so that uh, and particularly in Hull and a geography like that where it's in a basin and therefore all waters whether they're from the household or actually from the natural environment because over hundreds of years uh, humankind has manipulated the water environment to our to our needs and purposes particularly as we've become more urbanized so a lot of even the natural water system, as we might think about it, drains to the public sewer network and then quickly gets overloaded. And that's really the heart of the problem that we have. And increasingly, uh, as we try and focus on what we call nature-based solutions, that's really looking far beyond uh, Hull and the Living With Water focus on the immediate city, out into the catchments for quite some distance outside of the city, to where water is ultimately uh, landing when it rains. And therefore, there are so many players involved and how do we all come together for a singular vision? And one of your challenges is uh, the shift, uh, I guess, to longer periods of lighter rainfall, uh, but then with uh, much more extreme storms coming through. Yeah, it's a very real issue. And I think we saw it particularly in 2018. We saw um, quite a long dry winter coming into that year and then a very dry spring summer. Uh, and then quite quickly in the latter end of that year, several floods across Yorkshire uh, in quite quick succession. Uh, but extremely unusual, but exactly what the climate scientists have been telling us is likely to be uh, coming in climate change more and more. 
but very much, you know, that the, the early foots, uh, the early signs of climate change are here and now, as I, as I said at the beginning. Um, but and I think therefore that there is a challenge in the too little water, too much water, and how do you cope with that? But I think the solution actually comes back together. And if we take this catchment view that I was mentioning, and this kind of much bigger, broader view uh, of how water is really pervasive through everything in society and the environment, then uh, if we can slow the flow uh, to prevent flooding and take these peaks out of the storm event. Um, and really keep that means keeping water in the natural catchments where it lands rather than letting it you know rush through in small uh, uh, channelized rivers uh, which then cause problems when they burst and overflow very very rapidly and quite literally within minutes and hours this is uh, happening to us these days but equally if we can slow that flow and uh, keep that water clean and actually you also are fixing the other issue at the same time because you're storing water for those drier spells so, uh, and kind of using things like peatland, which is often thought of as a natural sponge, uh, let, let those natural processes work. And then it does uh, help within both, uh, both sides of the challenge and other wider benefits too. It's, it's very much, we call it multiple benefits. And that means colossal changes for places like the Humber in terms of how we deal with that water. And it's about how we manage that water into the future. It's not saying that the whole of Hull will be under two metres of water in, in 100 years' time. That's far from it. There are things that we can do. There, there, there are um, mitigating or adapting um, uh, engineering solutions that we could look at, including, for example, a barrier across the, the front of the Humber. Um, to, to, to raise during those high tide lines. So, so there are ways in which we can manage that, that um, increase in sea level. The Environment Agency's Humber 2100 Plus project is a massive, big stakeholder engagement piece. And um, looking at the range of solutions that are out there to address this, this potentially two metres of sea level rise by the end of the century and understanding the consequences of those decisions for different parts of our landscapes and how we, we live and work as well. From natural to artificial carbon capture, I've been talking to Equinor and Drax to discover what they've been doing with the Zero Carbon Humber Initiative. Our focus today, and actually quite often, is the power station we have in, in the Humber estuary area. Um, yeah, it's the largest power station connected to the UK transmission network. It can power up to 4 million homes at any one time. And it's been a sort of fundamental part of the UK network since it started operation in 1974. In recent years, we've converted the power station so that we no longer run with coal but for two thirds of our units, we run with sustainable biomass. But that isn't sort of, I guess, the end of our story. We, we want to look at how we can capture the carbon dioxide emissions from the biomass so that actually we can become a carbon negative power station, which would be very much a world first. But it really was a, a bold and ambitious statement. But we said, you know, we want to be a carbon negative company by 2030. I think we're the first company around the world to say so. And to be able to say that when we're a power station operator is, is, is really amazing. So changing drags from, you know, what was the 1970s coal fired power station to something that can have a, a positive effect on the environment by reducing and taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere was a fantastic, fantastic transition. Uh, and people now talk about BECS, which is the biomass and the carbon capture and ultimately right. storage. So, so where are we with the technology to, to deliver that? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a really great question again. I think so. Um, 2019, we started pilot a pilot plant at Drax to capture carbon dioxide from the flue gas. So it's a small scale installation. It uses um, a novel solvent developed by a company in Leeds called Sea Capture that we cycle through our flue gas and it takes a small proportion of carbon dioxide out. And it, it was a pilot project. It was there to demonstrate that we, we could do it. And actually, you know, that's the first time anywhere in the world that carbon dioxide was captured from a biomass flue stream. We actually, as of this week, have another pilot plant on site that's being run by Mitsubishi so that we can look at different forms of technology. You know, the, the pilot plants that we have at the moment, they're capable of capturing around about a ton of carbon dioxide a day. Each unit at Drax would be capable of capturing 4 million tonnes of carbon dioxide per year. So the four biomass units that we have, we can capture 16 million tonnes of carbon dioxide per year. And that makes a sort of considerable inroads um, as we work towards net zero as the UK. The aim of the bid is to actually develop low carbon infrastructure across the region. And that includes a CO2 transportation system as well as a hydrogen transmission system. And all of those uh, systems are anchored by the H2H Salt End project. And the H2H Salt End project is looking at building an autothermal reformer, 600 megawatt, which would be the world's largest low carbon hydrogen scheme to fuel switch the uh, Triton CHP and other large users on the chemical park, reducing its current emissions from 3.5 million tonnes to one mil- uh, by 1 million tonnes in the first instance. And then we have very clear... Uh, step out strategies, how we can expand that hydrogen economy across the Humber using a low carbon infrastructure, providing essential hydrogen and fuel switch many of the industrial users to uh, transition to that net zero position. Importantly, that hydrogen infrastructure, as well as, as as much as it would be anchored initially by what's known as blue hydrogen, which is hydrogen produced by reforming natural gas and storing the carbon, uh, the system will also facilitate the, the onset of, of at scale green hydrogen production by opening up the uh, first true low carbon hydrogen market in Humber. So whilst the zero carbon Humber initiative is very much focusing on the infrastructure on land, you've got another major project going on offshore. How do those two connect and, and, and what's the impact of all of that? Okay, so, so the like you said, the zero carbon Humber bid is focused on onshore delivery of low carbon infrastructure if you like, a gathering system for the CO2 and a distribution system for the hydrogen. So as well as the zero carbon Humber bid, we're also part of a Northern Endurance Partnership bid into the industrial decarbonisation challenge, um, which is looking at providing a shared CO2 storage solution service both the Humber and the Teesside industrial clusters. And what's impressive about that is that, first of all, that gives the UK the opportunity to meet the uh, targets set by the Committee on Climate Change, which is to have two clusters storing 10 million tonnes of CO2 per annum by 2030, and at least one of those demonstrating at scale blue hydrogen, which would be the Humber. Um, but it also allows us to deliver with real credible upstream companies who have that off- offshore expertise. So the onshore bid and the offshore bid combined um, comprise around 15 multinational companies. Um, with a real ambition to deliver this benefit for for the Humber region and actually the Teesside region. I mean, this sounds like um, a groundbreaking uh, initiative actually leading the world. Is that correct? 
I think that's 100% correct, yeah. I mean, there's, there is no at-scale low-carbon market, low, sorry, low-carbon hydrogen market in the world at the moment. Uh, there's lots of aspirations to deliver one, both with a combination of blue and green hydrogen. Um, but there is no net zero industrial cluster or even truly low carbon industrial cluster in the world because all of these need infrastructure and they need technical excellence to, to deliver them. So we know the pieces of the jigsaw are there. We've got a consortium of companies who can piece them pieces together to, to provide a world leading strategy for the UK, which um, obviously with that brings all those economic benefits as well as meeting those climate change obligations that are so important. I think through the Zero Carbon Humber Partnership, by 2040, we could be capturing 15% of the entire UK emissions of carbon dioxide, which is a huge, huge number. The Humber Estuary, and if you look at industrial clusters around the world, we're, we're probably the second largest in Western Europe. You know, the Humber, the Humber really stands at the point of transition. It can really lead the way for the UK to convert to, to, to net zero. So what should Humber companies be doing to reduce their carbon footprint? Uh, that's a question that's been coming up a lot during the summit this week. So I've been talking to Carlos Sanchez in Switzerland, and he's on the line now. Good afternoon, Carlos. First of all, uh, I would like to say thank you, Jonathan, for inviting me for this uh, great initiative uh, about the Waterline uh, Summit. My background is in engineering, and I have more than 18 years experience in corporate sustainability. Currently, I'm working as global manager of environment at Philip Morris International, and I share my experience as climate change advisor through my blog, carlosanchez.eco. What, what should organizations who are looking at um, maybe their carbon footprint, their impact on their environment, as well as their more general um, social responsibility, what, what should they be looking at in terms of decarbonization uh, and uh, how they reduce their carbon footprint? Well, as you know, climate change is one of the biggest crises that humanity has ever faced. And we know also that science uh, says that the, it's the, the, the carbon emissions released by the human activity that has produced this climate change. So what I see is that companies are more and more setting goals to, carbon, to reduce carbon emissions, and mostly after the Paris Agreement in 2015. So I read uh, last week that around 294 companies have set uh, targets uh, to reduce uh, the carbon emissions and to be carbon neutral by 2050. So there is a huge momentum about this. I would say that the main reason for companies to, to do this is, uh, first of all, is, uh, of course, is the right thing to do. But uh, there are other reasons like reducing risks, reducing costs, or attract capital and attract uh, uh, talent. So it's not just about uh, being seen to be doing the right thing for the environment but there can be some real business benefits. Yes, there are indeed. So uh, if, if you look uh, short term, probably you will not see these benefits, but if you're looking medium long term, then for sure you will, you will find this. Uh, one of the questions um, that, that's, that's come in is from companies concerned about starting off with good intentions uh, but then being accused of greenwashing. How, how do companies demonstrate they're not just making a superficial gesture here, but they're genuine in what they're doing? Well, it's, it's a difficult uh, question that, about the, the greenwashing, uh, because uh, 
first of all, I think no companies is just trying to, to, to just uh, be nice uh, seen outside because the risk that if this turns out to be just a marketing operation will backfire all your efforts. So maybe this was something that you could do several years ago. But these days, I think this is getting more and more difficult. So as an example, most companies that want to be leaders in sustainability need to report through platforms like CDP, DGSI, and, and these platforms require you specific data to be verified by third party. So it's, uh, it's, it's, I would say it's more and more difficult to be uh, on that. Well, thanks, Carlos. Uh, good advice. And you can hear my uh, podcast with Carlos, which will be released next week. So that takes us nicely to look at the international trade opportunities. Before we talk to the rest of our global trade guests, I've been joined by David Livingston from Washington, D.C. Hello, David. Please introduce yourself. I'm David Livingston. I'm a senior analyst working on global macro and energy and climate issues at the Eurasia Group, political risk consultancy in Washington, D.C. And I'm also a non-resident senior fellow of the Atlantic Council. What are the drivers you're seeing across different aspects of, of the markets globally that are, are driving demand uh, in this sector? Well, obviously, as we sit here at the entry point of the third quarter in 2020, it's, um, it's, it's impossible to sort of look away from the biggest factor that's been shaping global economics and energy markets um, and policy in 2020, and that's coronavirus. Now, when it comes to, to energy, when it comes to the energy transition and the opportunities in addressing climate change, like in so many areas, it's been more of an accelerator than a pivot point or a turning point. Um, it's truly accelerated trends already underway. We've seen incredibly significant prolific growth in renewables, cost declines in renewables, batteries, et cetera, um, over the past decade. But that's likely to only continue in an environment in which you have low interest rates like you have today with many central banks, including the U.S. Federal Reserve, responding to the coronavirus crisis by lowering rates. It's going to decrease the cost of capital and obviously make projects with upfront costs, but lower recurring fuel or maintenance or uh, you know, ongoing costs, such as renewables, such as many clean energy projects. It's going to make them all the more attractive. Um, that's going to be magnified, of course, by the policy response on the fiscal side to COVID-19. We've seen you know, a variety of different fiscal stimulus programs across both the uh, developed and emerging markets. And um, at your age group, we did a little exercise uh, taking a look at what was the green or brown nature of that fiscal stimulus across different major major markets, major economies, we found that at the, at the midpoint of this year, and of course there's been some continued stimulus since then, but at the midpoint of this year, there was uh, uh, almost uh, uh, 500 billion of, uh, of green stimulus, which far exceeded the amount of quote unquote brown stimulus, um, which was built into some of these policy responses. So on net, that fiscal stimulus is just going to kind of further support and accelerate the energy transition as well. Um, and it's going to be, you know, particularly where you have large infrastructure projects, it's going to be one of the major uh, elements of sort of, you know, identifying shovel-ready work that can try and uh, counteract some of the more 
um, deflationary impacts of the coronavirus crisis and the broader and the broader economic implications. Um, and then, you know, the final thing I uh, that that I would just note is the fact that you've seen this kind of, despite the distraction of the coronavirus crisis, uh, and, and you know, a noteworthy distraction, of course, an understandable one considering the scale of that challenge. It, it's it's actually somewhat remarkable that um, the the kind of steady drumbeat of of climate pressure, a pressure to address climate change by governments and also, you know, in the boardroom has continued apace. Um, the UN climate conference, which was supposed to take place in Glasgow at the end of this year, of course, has been postponed until uh, mid next year. But that actually hasn't prevented some major announcements this year. We've had, you know, uh, some important corporates like Nike, Danone, Microsoft and others, um, you know, uh, working together to set up this uh, this alliance for net zero, um, which is really pushing companies to not just make climate commitments, but to have a clear and art articulated pathway to net zero and a commitment to getting to net zero. You've got China making this major announcement to, to go uh, net zero by 2060. Um, so you see this steady drumbeat from companies and from countries as well. And I think all of that is basically just going to continue to accelerate the momentum that we already had coming into the year 2020. Mm. So um, you talk about the effects of COVID-19, that the, the pressures it's putting on economies. Uh, I mean, is, is uh, in renewables and, and this whole sector therefore going to be a casualty or a benefactor? Because on the one hand, money is in short supply, but on the other hand, governments want to invest in big infrastructure projects to stimulate the economy. It's absolutely right. I mean, it's it, there are countervailing factors. I mean, certainly you're going to see some, you, you've already seen some fall off in, for example, electric vehicle purchases uh, and an increase, for example, in used car purchases. Um, so in the transport sector, that's going to, you know, slow, slow the uh, the rate of EV uptake and, and um, you know, and, and also slow the increase in fuel efficiency in the fleet to the degree that you're getting more used cars changing hands and slowing the introduction of more uh, efficient vehicles into the fleet. Same with renewables. We've seen some delays in projects. Um, you know, there are going to be certain players that are going to be stressed that are going to have difficulty from a financing perspective. Um, but ultimately, the sort of the, uh, the challenges and the headwinds that are facing the clean energy sector have been relatively less than those facing the oil and gas sector this year, just because of the precipitous, you know, price decline that we saw in the oil price, which is, of course, not just a casualty of COVID-19, but also a casualty of some of the structural dynamics within the OPEC plus coalition that led to a, a temporary cessation of the kind of more active market management role by players like Saudi Arabia, Russia, et cetera. We sort of had this, you know, this temporary war over market share between those big producers, Saudi and Russia, that led to this precipitous collapse in oil prices. And though oil prices have stabilized now, kind of around the $40-ish range, um, it's, a, it's a level which is much lower than we, than we entered the year at. It's a level which is just uh, at, the very, at the very threshold of what a lot of um, uh, producers need around the world, including shale producers in the United States, to be able to kind of continue. And so at these oil prices, certainly investments in, uh, you know, in clean energy projects are a bit more attractive. And that's all the more true if you have a low upfront cost of capital so you can afford to kind of make larger capital investments now that reduce your recurring uh, expenses going forward. 
Well, thanks for that, David. Please feel uh, free to stay on the line. Uh, so now let's move to our look at international trade opportunities for Humber businesses with export potential for sustainable products, services or expertise. And before we introduce the panel, I'm pleased to welcome local MP and uh, Minister for Exports, Graeme Stewart. Uh, we just heard a little earlier about the wide range of initiatives in offshore wind, decarbonisation, hydrogen uh, and carbon capture. Uh, this seems to put the Humber in a very strong position. Well, it does. We uh, have the largest industrial emissions of any cluster in the United Kingdom. So when you're trying to move to net zero, you can't ignore the Humber. Um, indeed, Salt End in my constituency is a very significant uh, emitter, as are the uh, the refineries and other centres around uh, power stations on the South Bank, and of course, moving up to Drax. So and there are very ambitious proposals coming forward um, uh, to uh, use carbon capture and storage to harness biomass and uh, blue and green hydrogen so as to transform the Humber's footprint and move us from being the largest industrial emitter in the United Kingdom to net zero and to do so um, in the uh, next, uh, in the 2030s. So there's a lot of ambition around. We're competing for government support, wearing my non-government hat for a moment as a uh, local MP. But there, there's, the Humber really is at the heart of so much. Not only what we've done so far, as you say, the offshore wind, it, the global economics of offshore wind have been transformed predominantly around here, off the coast of my constituency from £120 a megawatt hour um, in the auction of 2015 to £39.50 in 2019. Totally revolutionary. So when I went out as uh, a trade minister to Taiwan, met the president of Taiwan last year, signed an MOU with Taiwan for offshore wind because they want to have giga, gigawatts worth of offshore wind off Taiwan, we do so from a strong position. And I was pleased... Um, again, as the minister responsible for UK export finance, to agree hundreds of millions of pounds of UK export finance funding for UK supply to Taiwan. And uh, we're doing it in other countries as well. But the Humber is absolutely the heart of it. And uh, the next uh, big step forward could well be in the, um, in the hydrogen uh, CCUS uh, space. And the Humber's in a great position to uh, deliver uh, world-leading innovation in that area as well. Um, international trade is highly competitive. Um, uh, we may be ambitious, but we're competing against many other players around the world. And no doubt we'll hear from some of your colleagues uh, in, in a moment. So how important is it that there are uh, initiatives like the Waterline, which are raising the profile of the Humber as a, as a cluster of excellence around the world? Well, it's so important. If you don't blow your own trumpet, no one will know. Um, we know from Inward Investment uh, how important it is to uh, uh, highlight uh, the strength of an area, make sure that uh, people understand globally. That's why we have high potential opportunities in Inward Investment. Uh, rail near Doncaster, for instance. It's so important that the strengths in the Humber are communicated, that we speak with confidence. We don't sit quietly um, getting on with our business. We need the global giants to be aware of what's going on here. We need them to invest here. And thus, we can accelerate the development of our solutions. And from that, we can build an industrial base from which we can then export. And that's such an important part of it.
And just before we do go over to your colleagues, um, we're at a, a critical time now in terms of developing our relationships, our trading relationships around the world. Uh, virtually daily, we're hearing of new trade deals or, or of being close to trade deals with many countries directly. What will that mean for us now? Well, most of global growth is expected to be outside of Europe over the next five years and onwards. So whatever your views on Brexit, what it does do is uh, give us the opportunity as an independent trading nation to go out there and use the more agile position of the UK to negotiate better deals. Now, some said, well, you'll never be able to do that. You haven't got the clout of the EU. Well, I think the uh, UK-Japan deal disproves that. We've uh, replicated uh, most of the EU-Japan deal, which we were a strong supporter of. Um, but we've been able to go further and do something that's more ambitious, not least on data, digital um, and some other aspects uh, around uh, customs facilitation for small businesses. But that is just the beginning. We are, we are uh, continuing our work on replicating existing EU third country deals, but looking to go further. And uh, we're in negotiations with the United States, with Australia, with New Zealand, and we're looking now to join the CPTPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. An interesting thing about that is that if you take the share of global GDP of the members of the CPTPP uh, and you add that to the UK, it comes to roughly the same size as the EU27. And yet it's also a faster growing part of the world. So I see one of the real challenges for DIT is to reposition UK trade aligned with the fastest growing parts of the world. Because if you are in any business, if you supply the incumbents and they're growing less quickly than the, the insurgents, you aren't going to be a major player after long. So uh, we're, we're looking to do the best deal we possibly can with the EU, minimise any frictions while accepting there bound to be some because we're not going to be a member of it anymore, um, and then maximise the opportunities around the rest of the world. Um, DIT, you know, my department, did not exist before 2016. We're a sort of post-Brexit creation. And the aim is to go out there, and as we've shown with Japan and we're showing with other countries around the world, we think there are real opportunities, but you've got to deliver them. And then you've got to support businesses to um, take advantage of the uh, door opening, which uh, my department is leading. Great. Well, stay with us. Uh, we're going to uh, have a whistle-stop tour of the world to look at where the uh, potential exists for Humber companies. And we'll come back to you uh, at the end uh, to get your thoughts and uh, to close this session. So we'll speak to you again in a moment. Okay, so let's turn to our guests around the world, uh, starting in Asia-Pacific and the Trade Commissioner for that region based in Singapore, Natalie Black. Well, firstly, Jonathan, thanks so much for inviting me to be part of the Waterline Summit. Uh, it's really a great, great pleasure. I'm really looking forward to our chat today. Uh, so I am Natalie Black, Her Majesty's Trade Commissioner for the Asia-Pacific. So that means that I lead the UK's trade and investment across Northeast Asia, so Japan, Korea, and Taiwan, Southeast Asia, or commonly known as the ASEAN states, and Australia and New Zealand. So a pretty big patch, but one that is taking a huge interest in renewables in particular. So clearly we've been seeing uh, the impact of uh, climate change, uh, extreme weather events, uh, and other things happening across 
the region and they're having an impact on policy now. So what are the, what are the drivers uh, that, 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 that are creating demand? What are the pain points? Well, it's a really good question, Jonathan. Uh, and I'm afraid that the pain points are quite significant in terms of uh, the argument for change, right? Why do people need to take climate change more seriously, not only just around the globe, but specifically in Asia Pacific? And if you, you look at some of the numbers, it's pretty damning. So last year, um, over 68 million people just across Southeast Asia. So that's still a relatively small part of my patch were impacted by climate change. And I'm sure lots of people saw um, the videos and media coverage of everything from the typhoons in the Philippines, for example, to the flooding of Jakarta, um, which was pretty much out of action uh, for a good couple of weeks. So it does feel very real here. Um, and I think that's um, made uh, a number of governments across the region really step up its attention and activity, which is great news uh, for UK business, which has such brilliant expertise in this area. And I hope we're going to talk about that more. Um, but of course, the, the overlying factor to all of this is we're dealing with a, a climate crisis, but now we're also dealing with a COVID crisis. So navigating how those two come together is probably going to be one of the biggest challenges for business in, in this part of the world. But it actually brings real opportunities because a lot of issues are going to be looked at fresh um, for a long time. And I genuinely think that there's going to be real appetite to make sure that uh, green policies are not an afterthought, but a core part of the government's economic response to COVID-19. So clearly there is expertise in the region and more being developed, but I'm particularly interested in, in the gaps and therefore the opportunities. Um, so, so where's the local expertise and where are the gaps? So I think if we talk about strengths, it's probably worth starting with the sort of scale of the opportunities. And at the top of that list is absolutely offshore wind. Asia as a whole is set to become uh, a leader in offshore wind um, by 2025, if you uh, if you believe the numbers. So the, the market share at the moment is about 24%. It could go up to as much as 45%. Um, the challenge is that the majority of that absolutely will be in China. But actually, when you look at the interesting opportunities, and back to your point around the gaps, it's really Taiwan, Japan, Korea, and Vietnam, uh, where they are looking for um, companies to fill gaps which they can't actually do domestically, or they're competing uh, for attention because there is um, so much attention put onto uh, China, understandably so, given the scale of the opportunity. Um, so I think uh, well, the, the first point I'd want to make to sort of those people watching and, and listening is to encourage them to look uh, beyond China and look at uh, Asia as a whole region. Uh, we all say Asia doesn't equal China and sometimes it's easy to forget how big and how differentiated the markets are in this part of the world and actually that becomes a real opportunity um, because it means that you can go and plug the gap somewhere else that maybe hasn't got the attention uh, that uh, might be warranted at, at this stage and that's uh, absolutely what we're seeing in terms of uh, real deals materializing on the ground so again going back to offshore uh, wind Taiwan is at the construction stage and we've already seen some fantastic wins for UK business and they've been backed by um, UK export finance and that's exactly what we want to help facilitate in, in this part of the world. So in terms of our ability to trade with a lot of these 
countries. We've heard a lot recently about new direct trading relationships. Uh, there was the agreement with Japan announced recently. Um, so uh, how easy, how much friction or hopefully lack of friction will there be uh, in the months and years to come in doing business uh, with Asia Pacific? Well, I think it means the UK is getting a lot more attention. Uh, it's really being noticed uh, that we are stepping up our activity in this part of the world. Um, it will feel like a lifetime ago, but uh, back in January, the Foreign Secretary's first uh, post-Brexit visit uh, was to Asia Pacific. And I think that really indicated um, the enthusiasm and interest from the whole of the UK in this part of the world. And on the ground, that means that there's a lot of questions around what is the UK um, going to be interested in next? Which sectors do we want to particularly get involved in? Uh, what kind of business-to-business uh, -business, uh, arrangements uh, will we want to champion and facilitate? So it's quite exciting from that point of view um, because the level of interest has taken, uh, I, well, I've been in this job about two years now. And even over these two years, I, I think you can really feel it on the ground in terms of um, uh, the opportunities for the UK and the level of interest in terms of what we're doing, um, particularly in Southeast Asia. So the UK government is currently applying for dialogue partner status as uh, part of ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. And it means that we're spending a lot of time with all um, members to really explain and explore what opportunities there are for the UK to collaborate in this part of the world and of course as part of that conversation it's about championing UK expertise and making sure that we're showcasing the very best and I'm personally very conscious and very committed to making sure that this is about showcasing the whole of the UK and so it's a, sort of an ask from me uh, to everyone who's involved in Waterline to make sure that we know your stories you tell us what you're interested in tell us what um, you want to get up to because then what we can do is make sure that we of course make the right connections on the ground uh, but also we should be uh, talking and explaining uh, what um, uh, opportunities you you want to bring out to this part of the world so we can be sort of mini ambassadors for all the businesses which maybe can't physically get here at the moment because of COVID-19 but we're finding more virtual ways to connect like this. So at any stage if anyone has any questions they can get in touch with us to make sure that we signpost um, uh, companies to the right um, places for advice. So if, if uh, you'll indulge me Jonathan I'll, I'll just read out that email address. So it's dit.apac, so dit.apac, A-P-A-C, at fcdo.gov.uk, and, and maybe you can share that as well as part of this. But that um, is a good place to go for some signposting, and then we can direct you to the relevant team. Thanks, Natalie. And we're joined now from Australia by the Chief Executive of the Australian British Chamber of Commerce, David McCready. What opportunities are you seeing there? Well, to be honest, it really depends on what you want to do. There's, there's opportunities everywhere you turn, particularly in this energy sector uh, and, and looking at renewables. We've got a lot of work happening, uh, everything from grid stabilisation uh, and development, uh, making sure that you know, there's much more uh, diverse number of places that energy is going to come from. Uh, you know, the traditional Australian model is you, have a, you whack a big power station here and then all the cables go from that to everywhere else in, in Australia in its local area. Um, we're now talking about needing to have solar farms, you know, various solar farms in different sites, wind farms in, in numerous sites. Uh, what are we doing about 
uh, hydro. Uh, there's all sorts of different opportunities. Um, so there's there's lots of different opportunities for businesses to come and be involved in, uh, be that wind farms, be that solar, be that in, into the grid, uh, be that down to, uh, you know, Australia is one of, if not the highest uh, country in terms of rooftop solar houses. So there are great opportunities everywhere you look. And hydrogen, I haven't even touched on hydrogen. How can I miss hydrogen? We've got every state government in Australia is desperate to get involved in hydrogen uh, and understand what we can do there, whether it's uh, you know, blue hydrogen, as they say, or, or truly green hydrogen. I think there are great opportunities uh, to on, on that development story here in Australia. So uh, if those humble companies uh, here uh, watching this today uh, are keen to explore the Australian market further. Uh, how can your organisation help? Well, look, the easiest thing is just to reach out to us and let us know that you're interested uh, and we'll happily connect you uh, from everybody, from regulators, from government, uh, key proponents in, in government. We had the uh, Assistant Secretary for Energy Policy in Victoria speaking for us last week. Uh, we've got great connections in, across the board in, in that sector. Uh, and they're all very keen to hear and understand about investment, about technology, uh, about how we can actually deliver on this promise that we have. I mean, we're, we're a massive country. We have huge, um, huge needs in terms of uh, transitioning from that really strong coal-fired uh, baseload that we have now. We, you know, we look with envy when we see the UK pop up with, you know, we've now gone 60 days or whatever it is since we last needed coal. Uh, for, for energy in, in the UK. We look at that, we'd love to get to that in Australia and, and state governments in particular are very keen to hear about companies that can bring either the technology or the investment dollars to, to make that happen. Uh, and we're keen to, keen to support you in that. We can connect you with those, uh, those key contacts and help you on your journey. Thanks, David. Let's move on to China now and Beth Davis Camadero, uh, the Head of Renewable Energy and Transmission at the Department for International Trade. I mean, I know China's often seen as a sort of honeypot uh, for, 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 for people wanting to do trade and get involved. And uh, there's already a lot of involvement in the region itself in uh, renewables and offshore energy. But is this potentially creating opportunities for Humbers, uh, for companies with that expertise in the Humber and, and the UK? Well, what are the opportunities for, for, for companies here? Definitely. Um, so just uh, last week, so we had a national holiday here. And just before that, we were taking around a group of UK companies working in offshore wind from financial institutions to um engineering firms, people working in different bits of the supply chain, operations and management. Um, and we'll bring all these companies around um, kind of local governments, um, different Chinese developers, design institutes who map out how different projects are going to work within a province um, and basically matching them up to have conversations. So I think when China looks at offshore wind, People often look at the UK, people look at Scotland, people look at the Humber and they say, you know, what's going on here? Everyone knows about the, the floating wind projects. Um, people are aware that the UK has a developed market, that we have the largest installed global capacity. And so people think, OK, so, you know, how, how has that happened and how can we apply those lessons in China? Um, and I think it's a particularly useful um, market for the UK because a lot of the strengths that the UK has, China doesn't have. 
and a lot of the strengths that China has, the UK doesn't have. Um, so again, I'll use offshore wind as the example. I know it's um, really important in the Humber. Um, the UK doesn't really have uh, a big turbine manufacturer. Um, China has lots of turbine manufacturers and lots of um, expertise there, whereas they don't put as much um, time or have as many companies invested in the uh, kind of design stage and the really like uh, some of some of the newest technologies, um, some of the health and safety, some of the planning, um, which are real UK strengths and things that have helped us to not just build all of the capacity that we have, but also integrate it into the grid and make sure that the whole system is working well. Um, so there are lots of opportunities in China um, and I think the two industries are quite complementary. So are, are we really looking at relationships that build a sort of quid pro quo, uh, a more of a partnership approach in bringing together complementary skills? Um, so it can be. I think um, it's it's often difficult with China. It's, as you said at the start, it's kind of this honeypot where people look at China and they're like, this is a huge market. Um, there's clear a clear government emphasis on wanting to increase the mix of renewables. Um, there is so much opportunity. Um, and then companies come here and find it really difficult. Like the business environment is very different. Um, a small company in China is massive in the UK. So just even things about how to kind of work out how to do business here um, can make things hard and kind of cultural differences and language and that sort of thing. Um, so I think when companies are looking at China, they need to recognize the opportunity and then have a strategy for how they want to target the market. Um, and it's not just, you can't, you can't really come and um, experiment into a project here. There needs to be um, a lot of planning and you need to be thinking about China as a specific market. It's not the same as Southeast Asia. It's not the same as kind of um, bits of Asia Pacific. Um, so, you know, you, you can kind of have a, find a Chinese partner. Um, lots of companies form a JV, um, but there are also different uh, different companies working here to try and get um, smaller SMEs into the Chinese market. So the offshore renewable energy catapult is one that springs to mind with, with a base both in the Humber and here in China in Shandong province, um, who have kind of acted as a bit of a launch pad for getting UK companies out here as well. So lots of opportunity. Thanks, Beth. Uh, and we've also got James Brody with us from the China Britain Business Council. So China-Britain Business Council was founded in the 1950s, um, at which point there was no government relations between the UK and China, and uh, a group of British businessmen started working um, with China and facilitating uh, trade. Uh, we've been through many different iterations uh, since then, of course, but um, essentially we continue to represent British business interests in China. So what have you been seeing in China in terms of, I guess, their challenges with climate and energy to an extent uh, that's potentially going to drive opportunities? So let's maybe start with, you know, what's happening in China that might be setting the scene for opportunities to do business? What you've got in China is massive state intervention at a policy level driving their their industry to become greener, driving their energy sector to accelerate the energy transition away from fossil fuels and towards renewables. Also 
I don't think we're going to see the end of fossil fuels in, in China anytime soon. So it's about um, also about accelerating the and improving the efficiency of fossil fuel technologies in China. So um, they're now at the cutting edge of um, super hypercritical um, coal fired power technologies. And they're also at the cutting edge of some um, demonstrations around carbon capture and, and usage. So really em embracing, on the one hand, moving towards renewables, but on the other hand, also working with, with the fossil fuels that, that are probably here to stay for a while longer in, in China. And are these opportunities mainly for the bigger companies or can small companies with niche technologies um, also have a, an opportunity to do well in the Chinese market? Again, I've seen um, success with, with both of those uh, cases. Um, so where that small company has a item of equipment that's you know, filling a, a tangible problem that, that the Chinese energy market has. Quite often we find um, the greatest interest from Chinese partners in very concrete, tangible solutions to problems that they've got. And, and, and quite often it's small, nimble um, SMEs that have come up with those solutions rather than, you know, the engineering giants of, of, of the world. So, um, there are definite opportunities for, for SMEs out there. Um, having said that, there's also big opportunities for uh, Wood and BP and um, Shell and, and, and the big operators that you'd, you'd expect to be out there with, with vested interests. So it, right across the, the, the spectrum, we've seen uh, companies uh, succeed with China. Thanks, James. And uh, just to give us a, a commercial perspective on the uh, marine sector, we're joined from Hong Kong by Matt Kerthoys of Pitch Pile Asia. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Matt Kerthoys. I'm a naval architect based here out in Hong Kong uh, with a particular focus on the renewables industry, uh, which is where I've been active for the past sort of three or four years. Uh, with the obvious explosion in the area of um, uh, active uh, wind farm sectors, uh, Taiwan, Japan, South Korea, and China, of course, which is now to be pretty much the world leader in terms of national sizes of wind farm. And um, how do the conditions maybe vary to what say businesses in the Humber and this part of the UK might be used to dealing with in terms of servicing the offshore wind sector here? In some ways there, there is um, a lot of uh, advantages in being in such a new industry that they are literally they are developing the port infrastructure so rather than being uh, forced if you will or often um, required to deal with some existing infrastructure they're building or infrastructure to match, which should hopefully, and the plan is of course that it will be well developed. Um, but when you see what has been done in the UK with um, Grimsby and places like that in terms of being able to rejuvenate areas by the influx of all the uh, um, requirements of the offshore wind. Um, so there's a lot of lessons learned being brought in um, and the governments appear to be listening to the industry um, and taking taking the advice and um, 
a lot of that advice is British led, uh, I'm pleased to say. Now, out here in the near North Sea, you referred to uh, some of the, the wind farms here. That is, I guess, relatively shallow ground, but some of the challenges out in Asia are in deeper water. So what does that mean in terms of the, the technologies and solutions they might be looking for in parts of Asia? Well, what I can certainly see around here is that when you, when you look at the North Sea, like you said, it's shallow. It's basically continental shelf as a, as a rough summary, whereas off almost all the countries involved in investigating offshore wind seriously, so Taiwan, Japan, South Korea, and Vietnam, they have a continental shelf, which then goes into a much deeper ocean um, depth. So to make as much use as possible of their wind resource, floating wind is being pushed very hard. But to achieve the ambitious targets set by government of sort of the 5, 10, 15 gigawatts in a short time, then floating wind solutions will be developed. Um, and it may very well be led in the end out here in Asia. Uh, and um, obviously we've been hearing from um, trade commissioners and specialists from the Department for International Trade around the world today. Um, where, where do you add value to, to Humber and British businesses looking to explore the markets? Um, wh wh you know, where do you bring additional expertise and, and, and how can you help them? How, what would be the process of, of, of uh, tapping into your expertise? Um, well, firstly, um, in the past uh, four years since I've been based back in Hong Kong, I've done a lot of work with the Department for International Trade and they've, they've been a, a great resource. They're a very valuable resource to UK businesses and I would highly recommend that they are certainly approached. Um, they can give very valuable in-country advice. Um, in terms of what I can bring over and above, if you will, or uh, to support that sort of exploratory work as well is that I've been active in the region commercially, not just from a, uh, an industry trade development point of view. Um, in terms of how I can certainly help businesses is that the first one is just for a conversation with someone who's been here and been active to say, you know, we have this product, we have this service, we have this solution. Is there a region? Could, do you know of a region where it's useful? And obviously I have a, network of contacts that I've developed um, with people who are always interested to talk to companies from the UK uh, or Europe or anywhere who are interested in working together. Thanks, Matt. Uh, and let's go to Emma Wade-Smith in Africa now. So I'm Emma Wade-Smith. I'm the UK's Trade Commissioner for Africa. And my role is to increase the value and the volume of trade and investment between Africa and the UK. I do that through 23 country teams um, who also focus in on sector work. Um, and we cover the whole range of trade and investment from trade policy and market access uh, through to trade and investment promotion. So for, for UK and Humber companies uh, who believe they have the right product services expertise, what would you recommend to them in assessing the African markets and, and taking the first steps maybe to, to look for those opportunities? 
So I can understand it seems pretty daunting. You know, I've, you know Africa is massive, uh, 54 countries. How on earth do you navigate through those? Um, so I would say the first step, please come and talk to us as DIT Africa. Um, and we can, uh, we can assess you know, what your business is, what your strategy is, what your values are, what you're looking to achieve. And then we can help you whittle that down into something that is much more manageable uh, and, and help to drive your strategy in the right way. Um, so, you know, and, and actually, you know, the, the, the sectors that I've mentioned, the ideas I've mentioned are just really the tip of the iceberg. And I think, you know, what is so exciting about Africa is that the opportunities are pretty endless. Um, and so I would encourage any company listening to this to get into touch with us um, and explore what uh, what the opportunities could be mm. and, and are those necessarily um, governments looking for support or are there organizations looking for supply chain uh, you know what, what's the sort of mix of opportunities you know could it be joint ventures what might it be we see across Africa typically governments are, are a big part of the, the sort of the buyer environment um, but increasingly as we see economies diversify and, uh, and deepen uh, we're seeing many more private sector opportunities um, one, th one of the things that works really well we find for UK companies is to find a local partner um, sometimes uh, enter into a joint venture um, and again we can really help companies to understand the, the landscape uh, to help put people in touch with potential partners um, and, uh, and guide and advise on you know, who to speak to and when. Thanks, Emma. Uh, and we're off to Europe now and your counterpart there, Richard Byrne. Which parts of Europe um, have got the most demand for the sort of technologies and solutions and expertise that the UK can, can offer? Where, where are those sort of hotspots, if you like, uh, of potential demand? Yes, well, uh, the EU has already announced £550 billion of recovery funding earmarked for low-carbon projects until 2027, uh, and there will be more from other sources. So we have seen European policymakers and businessmen making quite bold commitments uh, for a low-carbon future. Uh, we think the biggest opportunities are in offshore wind, electricity networks, electric vehicles, uh, and sustainable consumer goods. I was in Italy last week and uh, saw a presentation from two entrepreneurs, one British and one Italy, who are focused on sustainable fashion, sustainable clothing. A lady from Sicily who had a business which made uh, a very strong fibre that can be used for clothes out of orange peel uh, in uh, Sicily. Um, and then a British designer uh, who used totally sustainable clothing for her fashions. And both uh, are young entrepreneurs, both female entrepreneurs, uh, who are getting into this area. So we're seeing a lot of interest. I think for offshore wind, uh, the biggest markets are Germany, which is the biggest uh, receiver of our exports, uh, then Denmark, the Netherlands, France, Belgium and Ireland. That's third, fifth, sixth, seventh uh, and ninth biggest focus. Uh, so basically six of the UK's offshore wind sectors, top nine export markets are in Europe. In electric vehicles, uh, the free markets with the highest market share of electric vehicles in the world are also in Europe. 56% share of electric vehicles in Norway and 15 and 11% in the Netherlands and Sweden. And then when you look at electricity networks, Europe's renewables electricity generation will grow from 35% uh, of its energy mix to 61% in the next five years. So this will require corresponding investment in flexible electricity networks able to, able to accommodate uh, high penetrations of renewables. 
And this is an area, of course, that the UK uh, excels at. And how important is it? Oh, clearly, you represent the whole of the UK in, in uh, Europe. But how important is it that a region like the Humber essentially gets its act together and is working together in a proactive way in, I guess, what is going to become a very competitive market? Well, the uh, levelling up agenda, as the, the government calls it, is very important. We're determined to get as much focus on investment in the regions as we used to have in London and the South East. So it's very important to us that the North East uh, the Northwest, all parts of the UK, including the devolved administrations, uh, do get as much investment as everywhere else. So, you know, the Humber's success in this area and the support we're giving it is uh, very important to us. And I guess whilst there are some big players in this, there are also a lot of, I guess, what I would call SMEs, niche companies with great expertise. Uh, and I guess you would encourage them not to be daunted at the prospect of looking to export their technologies, enter export markets if they've not done that before? No, I mean, SMEs are actually the backbone of the US economy. Over 90% of all our companies are SMEs. Uh, and a lot of them have found opportunities on the back of these uh, technology investments by the bigger companies. And as you say, have niche areas of expertise. At DIT, we're very focused on supporting SMEs because we know they may have less experience at exporting overseas uh, than some of the bigger companies who are used to exporting globally. So we would urge SMEs who are interested in exporting uh, to contact DIT uh, or their, uh, the local international trade advisors. There's a network of trade advisors uh, managed by the Department of International Trade. So there will be some in the Humber region. And we've also got Catriona Graham, the clean growth lead for Europe, based in Milan. So what's the scope of clean growth for you? Well, it's a broad one. and uh, But we... We want to focus this campaign on um, specifically areas where the UK has a commercial strength, is showing global leadership, and, th and there's some overlap with that and demand in Europe um, for, for that expertise. So we've actually identified four specific subsectors uh, which we are going to be focusing on. One of them is um, offshore wind, uh, one is electric vehicles, or more broadly than that, actually, low carbon transport in general. Um, one of them is electricity networks, smart networks, smart cities. How do you upgrade your, your, your you know, physical electricity system? And the last one is sustainable consumption, which uh, in our definition means fashion, food and drink and also sustainable packaging which is something that the UK is um, particularly strong at and is perhaps a forgotten but important part of the the consumer supply chain that we want to also decarbonize. Well the Humber clearly is very strong on its uh, marine related uh, energy such as offshore wind with that m massive farm farms now and the commitment from the UK to really grow the offshore wind sector. Uh, some of that done in collaboration with European and Far Eastern partners as well. Um, so, so where are there sort of gaps, if you like, where, where are those opportunities for Humber and UK companies in parts of Europe? Yeah, well, I know well myself um, because I used to work on the offshore wind program in the UK 
and spent a lot of time in the Humber, just how strong that region is in particularly that sector. A lot of these investments have come from Europe and will continue to, we hope, come from Europe. So one thing that we're trying to ensure is that we continue to position the Humber and other strong UK regions as, as prime investment destinations, um, including after we've left the, uh, the transition period with the European Union, as prime investment destinations for European clean growth players. Um, and on the, other, on the other side, the, the exporting side, um, we're seeing here out here in market, as I hope in, colleagues are seeing in the rest of the world, a growing demand for UK clean growth expertise. Actually, if anything, this, this tragic pandemic we're living through is increasing demand for in Europe for um, for clean growth because most governments are now starting to commit themselves to a green COVID recovery and in the run up to our climate conference next year to a more ambitious path to net zero than they they had before. And do you feel irrespective of the new relationship that's emerging? with Europe and between Britain and the rest of the world, uh, people respect uh, uh, and acknowledge the expertise that the UK has and and, uh, will be attracted to it regardless. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I most enjoy doing this work in Europe at the moment is because it is an area in which the UK is really seen as a positive force for good and as a global leader um, at, let's face it, a time when, um, you know, it is a challenging context for the UK when you're working in a a new European Union market. We've always, where we were in the EU, been one of the leading voices pushing up ambition in the union around climate change commitments. And now outside of the EU, um, in the UK's role as, 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 as president of the COP26 next year, in partnership with Italy, of course, um, we, we have a particularly strong mandate for, for shouting about and, um, and, and driving action on, on climate change in the business community at the moment. And I think we're genuinely respected for that across the continent, which is a great place to be. Thanks, Catriona and Richard. Uh, So now across the Atlantic to North America and the Trade Commissioner there, Anthony Phillipson. As Trade Commissioner, I work with our uh, trade and investment teams across the US and Canada. Uh, That includes a focus on renewable energy and uh, offshore wind and topics like that and all feeding into our overall climate uh, ambitions. Uh, And as Consul General in New York, I work with the other consuls uh, and the embassy in Washington on, uh, on the climate agenda. Hugely important sort of period for us as we build up towards the COP26 summit next, uh, next autumn. Um, and uh, here in New York, we have a particular focus on topics like green finance, given the prominence of the financial services sector. Uh, but we work with colleagues in Boston on the, uh, on the broader offshore wind piece and with colleagues down in Miami on things like resilience. So it's a whole team, whole network effort uh, across uh, the teams here in the US and Canada. So, so what are the, the climate change 
challenges that uh, the US is facing. We've seen quite a, a range of, of climate-related issues in, in, in the news, but what's sort of and driving attention to the challenges of climate change? Well, I think, uh, I mean, what we're seeing, whether it's the wildfires on the West Coast or the hurricanes coming in from the Atlantic, I mean, I think we're now up to, I think Hurricane Delta was the 25th uh, Atlantic storm to hit the US uh, this year. That's, that's quite extraordinary. Um, there's also flooding in the Midwest, which is just costing enormous amounts of money in terms of damage to infrastructure. Um, and we're also, I think, seeing things like uh, the impact on uh, agricultural yields. Um, and then in the longer term, uh, people starting to get worried about climate displacement, uh, communities being forced out of coastal areas. So it's really, it's, it's happening in front of us in terms of sort of significant uh, weather events, but there's that deeper sense of the impact it's having uh, on the economy and on people's living standards. So what effect is that pressure having now in terms of policy in the United States? Because I, I guess it's no uh, controversial point that, you know, um, the current president has been resistant to, to, to some of the trends or has certainly been protective of existing industries. So, I mean, the policies of this administration, as you say, are quite heavily focused on uh, energy dominance and support for uh, traditional energy sectors and, and fossil fuels. Um, but it's actually a more complicated story or, or more interesting story, maybe it's a positive way of putting it, um, because there's an enormous amount that happens here at subnational level. So lots of activity driven by individual states. There are 10 states that have now signed up to net zero commitments. Uh, California obviously leading the way in some senses, including on things like uh, banning internal combustion engines or, or internal combustion engines after 2035. Um, we're also seeing uh, states take a lead on issues like offshore wind. Uh, a number of them have signed up to the Powering Pass Coal Alliance that we in the Canadian government have been promoting over the last few years. Uh, the mayor of Los Angeles had something called C40, which is a group of 40 cities. Uh, committed to climate action, and they will be a big part of uh, the, the COP summit, I'm sure. And then there's um, the private sector. Uh, you see companies like Google, Facebook, Walmart, Ford, JP Morgan, all in their way, uh, pushing for either low carbon uh, transition, uh, green finance initiatives. Uh, JP Morgan is signing up to the Paris Agreement in terms of aligning their business practices with that. And then last but not least, especially here in the US and Canada, uh, the incredible contribution that's being made uh, by the research community uh, and by universities uh, investing in clean tech, uh, understanding the impact of climate uh, events on our, on our economy and our environment. And if you put all of that together, the public sector, the private sector, uh, academia, which is pretty much what we're doing in the UK through the industrial strategy, you get a really sort of powerful sense of a whole of, uh, whole of economy, whole of community effort uh, along the climate issue. Uh, whatever is happening at a federal level. And even there, I would say that there is investment from the administration in clean and green tech and services. Um, so it's a more varied picture than it sometimes looks. So in terms of opportunities for UK companies, where are the, the existing strengths and where are the gaps that, that maybe create a potential for, for firms in the Humber and across the UK? Um, so I think there's two ways of looking at it. I mean, I, I just mentioned the industrial strategy and the investment that the UK, along with the private sector and academia, is making in uh, things like clean growth, which is one of the four grand challenges uh, of the industrial strategy. Um, the UK also, I think, is clearly a world leader in uh, things like offshore wind, and that's a big export opportunity here. 
uh, hydrogen, energy from waste. Uh, I think these are all areas where the UK has world-leading goods and services and world-leading companies that can offer those goods and services uh, here across, uh, across the United States and Canada. Thanks, Anthony. And we complete our whistle-stop world tour uh, in Brazil and the clean growth lead for Latin America and the Caribbean, Tony Preston, uh, who's also Deputy Consul General in Rio de Janeiro. Latin America, a big part of the world. Just very briefly explain how big a market that is. Uh, so Latin America and the Caribbean, I would describe it as huge, diverse, uh, important, and hungry for greater UK engagement, specifically in areas relevant to the Humber region, uh, from Mexicali in northern Mexico to the Diego Ramirez Islands off southern Chile. LATAC comprises 33 countries and is home to over 650 million people. And it's the most urbanized region in the world. There are 59 cities of over 1 million people. Uh, thinking politically, Argentina, Brazil, and Mexico are part of the G20 group of countries. Chile, Peru, Colombia, and Mexico are all ranked as easier to do business than India, South Africa, Vietnam, Indonesia, for example. Um, the forecast for growth pre-COVID was 2.7% across the region uh, up to 2023, and governments are eager to get back to those sorts of numbers as soon as they possibly can. Maybe just looking for a moment at that renewable sector, particularly the expertise here in offshore wind, uh, which parts of um, Latin America are, 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 are particularly focusing on those, those things? I'm thinking of obviously the coastal regions. Sure. Well, how much time do you have? Uh, <laughs> let, me, uh, let me give you some of the, the highlights. There are, there are other countries, so our teams across the region will be eager to speak to anybody involved in these sectors who would like to know more. But let me give you some, some highlights briefly. So in Brazil, where I'm based, um, the, the government has committed to reduce uh, emissions by 37% by 2025 and 43% by 2030. There's a very large renewable potential, including $32 billion uh, for wind, and a large part of that is offshore wind, and $8 billion for solar. There's also quite a lot of ex relatively low-quality existing transport infrastructure, which presents a, you know, a bit, an opportunity of around $209 billion US dollars um, in the coming years uh, as well. Um, thinking of another country where we have a really strong partnership, Colombia, they've committed to reduce emissions uh, by 20% by 2030. And, you know, a big part of this is to have 100% um, clean energy within that plan too. Um, Large-scale renewable energy generation in wind, solar and hydrogen is part of the Colombian government's plans, both in terms of the installation but also in terms of the design and the regulatory framework. So there are opportunities in the planning stage for a lot of these uh, opportunities, as well as uh, the installation and operating too. My experience of around nine months so far in the region is that there is no lack of opportunity here in Latin America and the Caribbean. There is no lack of desire to have more UK engagement in bringing about a number of these programs. Um, what we need to do is activate um, 
those, those sectors, those regional groupings in the UK, including in the Humber region, and support them to, to be parts of those really exciting projects and programmes. So, you know, here in DIT LATAC, we look very much forward to working with you in the Humber region to bring these projects and programmes to fruition uh, with your involvement. Well, thanks, Tony, uh, and to your colleagues and all our other guests uh, who joined us from around the world today. Uh, let's return to Graeme Stewart MP, uh, the Minister for Exports, to close. Welcome back. An interesting session there. Huge opportunities around the world. Um, so, uh, you know, from your point of view, um, looking at the Humber, um, there are opportunities there. I guess it's making sure, uh, as we've heard from some of your colleagues, that people don't necessarily feel daunted. They, they, they do explore and pursue export opportunities because, you know, it can bring not only so much uh, benefit uh, economically to them, but it will also, I guess, feed into creating jobs and skills and become something, I guess, of a virtuous cycle uh, for the Humber. Well, that's exactly what we're hoping for. Um, uh, last year, we overtook France um, and became the fifth largest exporter in the world, uh, which was a fantastic uh, success. And COVID has obviously um, knocked everything for six. In the meantime, we saw a huge drop um, when COVID hit, more than 25% cut in our trade, but then a very speedy recovery. And uh, businesses, and I see it, local, local businesses are remarkably uh, adept and innovative at finding ways around uh, challenges. And that's what, what, what I'm hearing from businesses, both locally and nationally, is a desire for practical help uh, to start exporting, particularly among SMEs. And that's why last week uh, I launched a new export growth plan, uh, which has a number of components to help uh, SMEs in particular to start exporting. So, for instance, there's going to be £38 million pounds, uh, of, uh, for the internationalisation fund. This will provide grants to businesses to pay, for instance, to translate their website uh, into uh, Chinese uh, or Japanese uh, and make sure that they can sell into those markets. Uh, there's also, we have founded the Export Academy, which will provide online training uh, and support for people to learn the basics of exporting, get the confidence, get the capability uh, in place. And we've also enhanced and hired more ITA 64 uh, international trade advisors across the country who are there to support exporters. So we've got practical help in place. How, Jonathan, you might well ask, uh, can people access it? They should go to great.gov.uk, great.gov.uk. They can contact their local um, international trade advisor. They can find specialist support among them for um, different industries, not least uh, uh, clean energy and clean growth, which is a key priority for the whole government and for my department. So at the heart of our um, thinking around export at the moment is to support the clean growth. That's why the uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer uh, gave another two billion pounds to uh, UKEF, the Export Credit Agency, specifically to support uh, clean growth in the last budget. And that's why I'm working in the department to make sure that we really scale up um, the support we're offering to businesses to, who want to go global with their green solutions. So go to great.gov.uk, find out about the practical support there. There's training, there's professional level support, and there are, there's the potential of grants. Um, we really are trying to uh, smooth out any problems. And of course, in a world of e-commerce, we've uh, sought to negotiate with major e-commerce marketplaces, both 
uh, business to consumer, but also business to business, which is more appropriate in this area. Um, and uh, a rich conversation can be had with our ITAs to find out what practical support we can have. And as the trade commissioners make clear, not only do, I, uh, do we have a, uh, a network of professional staff across the UK to support business, we also have um, a network of staff under our nine trade commissioners right around the world. So whichever market you want to go to, you should be able to get support from the UK. They're present in more than 100 and uh, they'll be knowledgeable and able to help uh, in almost every market around the world. And we're determined to make sure that we enhance the offer that we give to business. Fantastic. Well, it sounds with your various hats, with COP26, with GREAT and everything else you've mentioned, as well as being uh, a constituency MP here, you're in for a busy uh, and challenging, but hopefully rewarding time ahead. Well, I think we can all be so proud of what's going on. Too often, uh, you just only hear the negative. The challenges in tackling climate change remain immense. I've been involved since I went to the COP in 2005 when I was first elected, and then I ended up chairing Globe International, which is an organization of MPs from all over the world looking and, and, and looking at these problems and challenges. Um, but I'm really proud of the progress we've made. Um, we don't need to underestimate how great the challenges are going forward to take pride in what we've done so far. And I think as a nation, we should be um, proud of what we've done. As I say, no other major economy in the world has reduced its emissions more than we have. And we've managed to combine it with uh, dynamic economic growth as well. Going forward, we think that clean growth is going to be an ever larger industry. And it already employs hundreds of thousands of people in this country. We think that can grow enormously more. So we have higher wages, better jobs, all part of solving a global problem, but building prosperity and personal security here in the UK at the same time. We really can do both, um, but we need, to, uh, we need to bring everything together we need Waterline to keep up its brilliant job of bringing attention to all that's on offer in the Humber uh, and then working together. As I say, I think we can, we can make more than our fair share of contribution to tackling climate change and we can do so in a way which enhances rather than reduces our economic prosperity. Thanks, Graeme, and thanks again to everyone who's participated today. It's certainly been a, a very full session. And don't forget, um, we're going to have lots of full-length podcasts uh, chatting to all the guests that you've seen, and they'll be coming out over the next week or so. Uh, look out for those on the Waterline website, thewaterline.global. Uh, and also announcements on Marketing Humber social media. Uh, and there's also a special page on LinkedIn, The Waterline Live. Uh, so I'll be posting updates of where you can get all of those there too. So it only remains for me, Jonathan Levy, to thank you again for joining us today for The Waterline Live International Webinar. Thank you and have a good day. The Waterline Live Summit Special Join the climate conversation with Jonathan Levy.
Aurora Media Production for Marketing Humber.